0: And I've definitely found that the kind of health professionals that I work with, there's a little bit of a tendency to quite an obsessional focus type of mindset where you can quite easily get stuck in your thoughts because people tend to be very cognitive and very thoughtful. And so it can be quite difficult to step out of these thoughts. And it's worth remembering that that's a huge quality, that attention and focus is what allows us to be doctors, for example. It's what allowed us to pass our exams, you know, to achieve everything we have done. And it's a really amazing quality that we can be proud of. But that skill that we use, focus and attention, which helps you perhaps to solve a clinical problem, it doesn't work as well. If your problem is, I've got difficult feelings, then actually problem solving cognitively doesn't necessarily fix feeling anxious or feeling irritable. And actually feeling anxious isn't a problem that you can cognitively solve. And so you get stuck in a loop where you're worrying, you're trying to worry your way out of anxiety, but actually cognitive processing doesn't fix
1: an emotion. It's like apples and pears. Have you ever tried to worry your way out of anxiety or problem solve your way out of a difficult emotion? But the more you try to fix it, the worse it seems to get. Do you wish you had a few tools on hand to keep all that mental chatter at bay so you could just get on with your job without anxious or troubling thoughts getting in the way? And have you ever wondered how to deal with negative emotions you might be feeling in a more healthy way than either blowing up or just burying them? This week on the podcast, Dr. Lee David, a GP, CBT therapist and author, joins us to talk about just what we can do to manage our internal chatter, our anxious thoughts and difficult emotions when dealing with high-stress and high-stakes jobs. Let's face it, most of us are used to sorting out issues by problem-solving our way out of them. But when it comes to our own mental health, it's just not that straightforward. Lee and I discuss why this is and share a simple framework to deal with these difficult emotions, which Lee writes about in her new book, 10 Minutes to Better Mental Health. Her framework includes elements from CBT, mindfulness, and acceptance and commitment therapy, and is quick and easy to do on the hoof. No special qualifications required. And whilst her book is actually written for teenagers and young adults, I reckon we've all got just as much, if not more, to learn from it ourselves. So listen to this podcast to find out why reasoning with your anxious thoughts isn't necessarily the best course of action. How to label your emotions so that you can recognize them and deal with them more easily when they surface. And listen if you want to find out all about a simple four part framework which you can use anywhere to get you unstuck in under 10 minutes. Welcome to You Are Not a Frog, the podcast for doctors and busy professionals in healthcare and other high stress jobs who want to beat burnout and work happier. I'm Dr Rachel Morris, a former GP, now working as a coach, speaker and specialist in resilience at work. Like frogs in a pan of slowly boiling water, many of us have found that exhaustion and stress are slowly becoming the norm. But you are not a frog. You don't have to choose between burning out or getting out. In this podcast, I'll be talking to friends, colleagues and experts all who have an interesting take on this and inviting you to make a deliberate choice about how you will live and work. Are you constantly stressed and thinking about work? Does your laptop come with you on holiday? Your to-do list have permanent residence in your brain and your worry about how to handle the latest crisis wake you up in the small hours? then it's time to get your life back and that's exactly what our brand new online course will help you do. It's a 60 minute reset for healthcare professionals to shift your mindset so you can set boundaries and limits around your work without the endless guilt that you've not done enough. It's just £27 and you can get instant access now when you go to shapestoolkit.com slash get your life back. It's brilliant to welcome onto the podcast this week, Dr. Lee David. Now, Lee is a GP, she's a CBT therapist and an author. She's currently working for NHS Practitioner Health, and she's the course lead for the mental health course for Red Whale GP Update. So welcome, Lee. Thanks very much, Rachel. I'm really happy to be here. Really great to have you with us. Now, Lee has has written lots of books actually all around. CBT I think and the 10 minute CBT etc etc and she's got a new book out which is absolutely fantastic. So we're going to talk about the book and we're going to think about how it can apply to our families, our patients and I think most importantly to ourselves. So Lee just first of all tell us a bit about the book and who you wrote it
0: for. So this is a, a bit of a change actually because I've done a lot of work with adults but But lately, um, I've been also working more with adolescents. And so with a colleague, Debbie Bruin, we decided to co-write a book called 10 Minutes to Better Mental Health, using CBT and mindfulness for teens. And we just wanted to something really practical based on our own experience in a way to just bring some of the key principles of CBT and mindfulness into a really accessible way that, that could just make sense and that they could get their teeth into. And in fact, what I found is that I actually use this approach now with all of my adult patients that I do CBT therapy with as well, because actually it's easier for everyone if it's kind of simpler, if it makes sense and what makes practical sense. So in fact, I now use this
1: pretty much for everybody. Wow. And just looking through the book, there is so much content in here, which I think is so, so useful for so many people. But I guess when I think of CBT... I think of this very long, drawn out process that takes sort of several sessions of therapy to do. Is it really possible to do it in 10 minutes? Well, you can't do an entire CBT therapy session in 10 minutes. But what
0: we're trying to get at is that really, if you can just set aside 10 minutes here and there to make some tiny little changes, that that might be enough. Because actually, it's often about making little practical tweaks you know, people might do a therapy session, they go away and actually just do a couple of really small changes. And that's what actually makes a difference in their life. So we wanted to make it really bite-sized because we know that people's attention span, young people's attention span, all of our attention span is actually pretty short. So we wanted to really keep it focused. And we're also aware there's quite a lot of neurodiversity amongst the population of young people. And again, keeping it short bite-sized and, and easier to digest, makes it just more accessible for a much wider range of, of the audience.
1: And I love the way that you've demystified it. That it's actually, these are the different elements. This is a really accessible way to do it. In fact, I read the book without quite realising it was CBT. <laughs> because I was like, oh, that's interesting. You know, that's a really great coaching question. That And then, and then I like, oh no, this has all been CBT all the way through. It's sort of like CBT by stealth. Exactly. I mean, we've really tried to ditch a a lot of the
0: language, that kind of psychobabble that actually is just a barrier because it's all these words and it's like, what do we mean by all that stuff? So we've actually tried to get rid of a lot of the stuff that stops people from really engaging with it and try to make it down to earth, practical language that just makes sense.
1: So if I could just sort of rewind a bit and just start off with CBT because I think I've got an understanding of of how it works but what's the sort of neuroscience behind how CBT actually works? So
0: CBT is about looking at how you think it's looking at how you behave and then making changes so and the main focus really is about functional changes about improving the quality of living your life and we're actually this book is also informed a lot by acceptance and commitment therapy or ACT which is much less about challenging negative thoughts. So you won't see that so much through the book and much more about just noticing if I'm having a negative thought and then choosing how to act in a way that's helpful and moves my life forwards rather than letting a negative thought kind of derail me and lead me into a spiral of worry or something else like negative rumination. And mindfulness is about stepping back and just noticing what's going on and giving you choices about how to respond. So we have wound that together into a four-step approach to to understanding and then making changes in life which we call 10-minute growth so it's it's four steps in each one it's an acronym so we've got g is guide in a guide um r is getting ready for taking action making behavior change o is to observe and be open so that's kind of stealth for mini mindfulness but again mindfulness puts people off as soon as you say be mindfulness people kind of back away because it it seems like oh I've got to sit for half an hour and kind of empty my mind which I can't do I'm no good at mindfulness so again there's a lot of barriers and then W is is for wise mind and that comes from a different type of CVC again called dialectical behavior therapy which was developed for people with quite strong emotional swings such as a borderline personality disorder, but it's about just channeling a bridge between your emotional mind, your logical mind, and finding wise, compassionate choices about what's helpful and unhelpful. So again, we've really tried to demystify it, taking away a lot of the language and just have a four-step process, which actually there's CBT in a nutshell in those four steps.
1: That's really interesting. So it sounds like sort of my... Version of CBT is really quite outdated. Which in my head it's working out what warped thoughts I've got and then desperately trying to change those thoughts so that I feel better and and do better things. But sometimes it's not about changing those thoughts; it's about recognizing them and and accepting them. Is that right?
0: Exactly. So we have this really lovely analogy that I I use quite a bit, and I think it's it's in the book, which is if we imagine you're a GP. Let let's do this based on adults because I know a lot of our listeners are going to be medics and actually. If we can apply it for ourselves, we can then apply it for for our families or or our patients who are are young people as well. So if you imagine you're, um, Rachel, the driver of a bus, you're a GP and you've got to drive your bus, get the patients on, get them off. So you get there in the morning and there's a big long queue of patients at the bus stop. They're all waiting to get on. They all take ages to get on the bus. And then they're sort of rustling about and you, you have to drive this bus through a lot of traffic. You have to cross lanes. You have to make, you're an amazing bus driver who has to make decisions about where to go, not crash the bus, think about what the patients need, where they need to go. And you have to do all of that whilst you're driving. So now if you then stop at the next stop and who gets on your bus, it's all your worry thoughts. So the worry thoughts are the next in line at the bus stop. The old version of CBT would be stop the bus and have an argument with the worry thoughts, have a decision, you know, decide, stop Bothering me because the worry thoughts start saying, You might crash, be careful. Or have you gone the wrong way? Um, Or don't make a mistake. Or don't hit that. Don't look, there's another car there, be careful. Or do you think you should go around the roundabout three times because you don't want to miss your exit? So the worry thoughts are kind of tapping you on the shoulder and they're really disruptive. And so the problem is that you could stop and you could spend some time arguing with the thoughts, rationalizing them. But all the time you're doing that, you're, you're not driving, you know, you're not focusing on getting on with your day and driving the bus. So a more act based approach would be to say, OK, the worry thoughts are on the bus. What can I do about it? So I'm not going to argue with them. If I try and push them off the bus, they just jump back on at the back anyway, because my worries never go away. They they can always find a way back in. So I'm just going to bring my attention. So You could do the four steps here, actually. So G is for guide. And you think, where is important for me to be going right now? What is the important thing that matters to me at this moment? Where do I want to drive to? And supposing with the driving analogy, I really want to drive to the cinema because actually I want to, you know, go and watch a movie or I want to drive this patient to the hospital because they're quite poorly and I really need to pay attention to getting them there. So I need to focus on that. So we use our guide. Then ready for action. Okay. Well, I'm going to actually focus on taking actions that involve driving. I'm going to bring my attention to this open and observe. I'm going to bring my attention to, say, my hands on the steering wheel. I'm going to notice the colors in the road ahead of me. I'm going to listen to the sounds, notice my seat on the chair. I'm just going to be aware that I'm driving and I've also got a lot of thoughts and worries, but my attention, I'm going to bring it back away from the worries and say to the worries, look, sorry, mate, but I'm busy. I'm driving right now. And this is the most important thing I'm going to do. And if you keep focusing on that, then eventually they actually get a bit bored and they go and sit down at the back of the bus and kind of stop bothering you. And then W is wise mind. And that's your perspective, which means reflecting on that worry is not really getting things out of proportion. It's not helping me with my driving to pay attention to the worry or to be looking behind me while I should be looking up the road and looking where I'm driving. So actually, what makes sense is for me to focus on driving. And, and actually, the other thing that I have to remember is, okay, if I take a breath, I really care about working and I care about how I practice as a GP. And so it really matters that I'm I'm really focused. And so I'm actually that, that's what's important to me. So yeah, I'm going to bring my kind of reflective perspective on to how to deal with this situation and how to drive safely. And so you can bring those four steps into just dealing with worry there without necessarily just, oh, I need to change all the thoughts. So I don't know if that kind of illustrates the difference.
1: That's really helpful because I know that in the past, you know, when I've had some what well, well, I guess it used to be called warped thoughts or maybe still still called warped thoughts trying to argue yourself out it sometimes works you know actually you you look at them is that truth are people always acting like that does nobody love me or you know things like that but actually some of them you you can't argue with and the more you argue with the more they they come back so that idea of just looking at it and going is that helpful or not and if it's not particularly helpful I'm not going to try and argue it away but I'll focus on some something different that is a lot more logical really you can see how that would work better than just trying to get rid of every single difficult thought which which you can't if something's really bothering you no matter how much you try and argue it away it just won't go will it
0: no, exactly. And and I've definitely found that the kind of health professionals that I work with, there's a little bit of a tendency to quite an obsessional focus type of mindset where you can quite easily get stuck in your thoughts because people tend to be very cognitive and very thoughtful. And often their, their children are the same because obviously our genetics you know, means that our children are often very similar. And so it can be quite difficult to step out of these thoughts. And it's worth remembering that That's a huge quality, that attention and focus is what allows us to be doctors, for example. It's what allowed us to pass our exams, you know, to achieve everything we have done. And it's a really amazing quality that we can be proud of. But that skill that we use, focus and attention, which helps you perhaps to solve a clinical problem, is very difficult. It doesn't work as well if your problem is, I've got difficult feelings then actually problem solving cognitively doesn't necessarily fix feeling anxious or feeling irritable. It, it's much better with problem solving and actually feeling anxious isn't a problem that you can cognitively solve. And so you get stuck in a loop where you're worrying, you're trying to worry your way out of anxiety, but actually cognitive processing doesn't fix an emotion. It's like apples and pears, so they, they can't
1: really relate to another, one another. And does that make sense? totally so you, know, so you know I I, I have a, a few friends who are doctors and do suffer quite badly from anxiety and and they get very anxious about being anxious because like well I've tried all everything I can do to fix it and I've tried doing this and this and this and that's not fixing it and in the past when I've had an issue I've yeah I've cognitively thought my way out of it and I've solved it but yeah you're right you're using the wrong tool to solve the problem you know this is the a screw, and you're using a hammer, and the hammer won't work for a screw. But the way we've been trained is just to use that logical left brain thinking the whole time to to solve things. And then we try and apply that to our own mental health and our own well-being. And then surprise, surprise, it doesn't doesn't work.
0: Exactly. And the thing is, the higher the emotion, the less the tool fits, you know, because when people are in the high levels of, of anxiety or or they're really angry or they're feeling very low then actually our cognitive processing goes all ski whiff, and actually we're much less logical and our thinking patterns are much less kind of rational and so sometimes it's about creating a pause rather than trying to fix it cognitively when our cognitive tools are actually offline anyway they're not particularly effective at that point it's about using so it would be back to the o step of the grow where you just take a little bit of time out maybe going for a walk maybe doing a bit of mini mindfulness where you move your body and you just notice what it feels like to be sitting on the chair or stretching your arms up i often get people to you know i'll say just tell me a color you can see and i'll say i'll say oh i can see a, a, a green pen and a green cup and a, and a blue bottle and a blue book And I can hear. I say, what can you hear? You know, in the background, what's the quietest sound and the loudest sound? And maybe it's I can hear the wind, and I can hear some cars. And you're stepping out of cognitive processing. It's not avoidance, but it's just recognition that whilst my thinking brain is going on, at the same time, I'm also hearing, I'm seeing, I'm feeling physically. So I use movement. And I think with young people in particular. Physical movement is really helpful, so I, I would actually get sometimes get the adolescents in in my therapy room like up and running on the spot because it creates physical sensations that you can actually more easily recognise if you exaggerate it. So you take big steps or stretch your body, your arms up wide, and just really feel that and think, okay, well my shoulders don't feel stressed; they're just stretching. You know, my feet don't feel stressed; my toes. I'm actually okay right now. I know I'm still really angry and I can acknowledge that it's true, but there are parts of my body that don't and so you can kind of rest in the knowledge that there's bits that actually there's much more to your experience than that one high level emotion and that kind of it's like grounding, you know, if there's a storm, then you sometimes need to go to ground for a little bit of time, let the storm pass and only then do you go back to that's why w wise mind is the last one of the steps because actually you often need to do a lot of stuff to stabilize and kind of ground yourself before you even think about getting a wise perspective or trying to look for balance. You know, unless we're in a mental kind of place where we're able to draw on our prefrontal cortex and, you know, that goes offline when we're stressed and anxious. So that has to be back online before you can even consider using cognitive strategies. So it's quite late actually in the process.
1: This is making such good sense to me because it's I find this really interesting so you've written this book for adolescents and teenagers and actually you were saying it's aimed at teenagers but actually it's probably good for anyone up to the age of 25 and looking at it I think it's good for everybody (laughs) I think it's so fantastic and it strikes me that actually doctors and teenagers have a similar problem but coming from different places so we've just talked about the fact that the problem with doctors, we try to logically reason out our feelings. So we can't access our feelings very well because we're trying to be so logical about it. I think sometimes adolescents, teenagers have it the other way around and that they can't really access their feelings because they just know that they can be completely irrational, completely illogical because their brain is busy being rewired and all those hormones flying around. So for them, they don't really know what they, what they think or feel. So we've both got problems accessing our our true feelings, albeit from a slightly different perspective.
0: I definitely agree. And, and I think, the, you know, going back to the O, the observe step, I've, I think that learning to just recognise what is going on, that noticing. So I don't like the word mindfulness, I think I've said already, because it brings up idea, other ideas about what it is. But if you just think of it as noticing and asking yourself, what is actually going on for me right now? What am I feeling? And maybe I'm hungry, actually, or maybe I'm tired, maybe I'm anxious. And notice a name, just giving a label to your experience. Whether it's a GP who's just really busy in surgery and actually has got overwhelmed and and feels like I just can't take another patient. I, you know, the next person's going to push me over the edge. You need to pause and notice what's going on for me right now. You know, what what do I need and what do I need to do about it? So it's very practical. Because if you can know what's wrong, then you can know what you need to do. Is it a cup of tea? Is it you need to have a chat with somebody? Are you feeling a bit lonely because you've been in your but you know nine hours without seeing another person? Do you need to go to the toilet? You know, there's so many things, and I think adolescents also struggle with knowing what it is that's going on for them. And what, what I would often do with them because they often struggle with knowing the name of an emotion they're not always great at, at, at giving it a name. And actually, I would sometimes find a picture that depicts it with them so that they don't have to have a name or, you know, so we actually create characters. So, for example, I worked with a, with a young person who, who was feeling quite low and we, we came up with some characters to represent his feelings. So he used Winnie the Pooh because it who doesn't love winnie the pooh you know and eeyore when he was feeling quite low eeyore's a great concept because he's very lovable despite being quite sad i had another another young person used inside out you know the movie the disney movie and again they have a lot of characters so we 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 played with the idea of having these different characters and so it doesn't have to be this very sort of static tell me what the name of your feeling is because they're like I don't know I don't know what I'm feeling but if you can say yeah Eeyore's here right now Eeyore has shown up and I had somebody else who found a picture there was this really sad kind of image it's called grief I think and it was this, this sculpture of a kind of empty person and they were just looking really sad and lonely and for her it just represented how she felt when she was feeling overwhelmed and so Instead of saying, and I think its name was was Melancholy. So we said, well, all, right, all right, well, we'll call it Melly because it's just easier to say. So, so we then said, well, you know, has Melly shown up? And when Melly comes, what are your urges to act when Melly shows up? And when Melly showed up, this this, this person's tendency was to withdraw, to do less, to kind of cut off from people, maybe to snap uh, at, at, her, at her parents' And so we could just recognize that Melly probably needed a bit of a hug, actually. You know, Melly was probably quite sad and lonely because there's this sense of, I need to get rid of that Melly. Melly's a bright pain and I can't live with having a Melly in my life. It's too stressful. I need to be free of Melly. But of course, we can't be free of our Mellies. We have to live with them. And so, actually, what Melly needs a cup of tea and a nice slice of cake and to be kind of welcomed and, and said, come and sit next to me. And when you feel a bit better, we'll maybe carry on. And don't worry, there's no rush. Once you feel better, we'll get back on with things. Don't worry. I'm not going to have a go at you if you're struggling. And, and that's what Melly really needs. And that's what we need to offer ourselves. And so you can use lots of imagery and playing rather than feeling like it has to be this very static, emotion-focused language, which I don't think young people or adults actually particularly engage with
1: I think images are always so helpful, aren't they? Or, or just that, that's why we love stories and metaphors, isn't it? So, that metaphor of Eeyore immediately, yeah, if you've grown up with it, you know exactly what that is. You know, it's, yeah, like you said, lovable, but really looking on the bleak side the whole time. And, you know, it's like, come on, Eeyore. And I mean, we do that in coaching. We I use image cards all the time. And I, I remember when I first had my coaching, just being shown these different images and saying, you know, how does life feel at the moment? How would you like it to feel? And I could not have described that, but I could see it in the cards immediately, and like that's how I want to be—not, not, not like that. So, it's 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 helping people access their right brain a little bit as well. It is because when you create an
0: imagery and 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 if you name it as well, so I had someone else who they're in a chimp and who's called George, so they would refer to oh my George has shown up, and and that process of just noticing okay. Here's George, and he's telling me this, and he wants me to do this. But just as soon as you say, oh, I, I'm spotting that George is here, you're not in George at that moment. You're you're noticing from your prefrontal cortex, you're watching George from outside. So actually, that is mindfulness right there in that inner in a split second, but it's very quick. And so actually, that's all you have to do is, is learn to look at it from a slightly different perspective. So we need to kind of have stories, images, ideas, humor, anything that gets people reflecting
1: and thinking a bit more broadly. I get it. You're pushed for time. And with over 200 episodes, how do you know which is going to be the one that lifts you out of the saucepan and back to thriving at work? Never fear, the You Are Not A Frog podcast quiz is here. Find out if you're a super squirrel, brilliant badger or mighty mole, and I'll send you a personalised playlist with the top five episodes that will make the biggest difference to you. Discover your top of the hops, top five episodes, sorry, and leap into your happiest thriving self again. Just go to youarenotafrog.com quiz. just adolescence is it or children it it's adults as well but so, and if anyone um hasn't read the chimp paradox which uh, lee was referring to i'd really suggest you go and read the chimp paradox by professor steve peters and yes he talks about your inner chimp being this amygdala reaction and interestingly one of um, my colleague's has the Chimp Paradox book for, for for children. And the in the children's version, you you get to name your chimp. And so her daughter named her chimp, but then made her mum name the chimp as well. So that all the whole family have named their chimps. Now, as far as I remember, in the Chimp Paradox for adults, we don't name our chimps, but I think it would be really helpful. So yeah, name that chimp, name that melancholy e bit of yourself as well. Because like you said, the minute you can step back and go, oh, there's Colin or whatever that is, that's that, that's that mindful moment, which shows that you are not your feelings, right? They're not the
0: truth. Exactly. So I try and encourage people as I've spent more time kind of practicing as a therapist, I've become very interested in internal family systems, which is not CBT based at all, but it looks at different parts of yourself. And I really like that idea because it actually, you know, we have our inner Eeyore, we probably have an inner Tigger, we've got an inner critic, and we've also got an inner wise, compassionate, sort of reflective, thoughtful part, who is the part that is so good at supporting our patients, our our friends, which actually, if we just engage that part, we don't need to have external advice about how to deal with stuff, because we've generally speaking, got all the answers already. But it's just a bit offline, because that wise part, the prefrontal cortex part, which is the wise part, is a little bit slower to step up than the chimp part, which comes up, you know, in the face of danger or stress, who comes first, you know, the the inner chimp says, "Ah, ah, there's a problem, there's a problem. So immediately that comes up very quickly and so the the prefrontal cortex is slower but if you give it time so that's back to the open observe and pause it will catch up and actually you don't need to do anything very clever except wait for the wise part to give you some perspective and um, I would often get people to think of create an image for their wise part as well actually and give that a name and I would often get people to think of you know who for you represents something really wise and thoughtful. And I've had some people think of like a, a grandparent, so like, like a grandma. Somebody else was like bird, a tree, the sun. A lot of people, pets, because pets are often much more wise, I think, than humans. And so a lot of people were with a cat. So somebody thought of their their lovely cat that they had when they were growing up, and you know when they were feeling stressed it was kind of just imagining that the cat sat on your lap and the cat's like do you know what I don't really care about these problems you're telling me about that, that they're not that important to me I love you and you know I said to them do you think the cat or your grandma loves you more if you don't make mistakes do you think your cat or your grandma thinks more highly of you if you're a perfect version of yourself and, and they're like no actually no and it's like no possibly the opposite like you know they love you more when they know you need support and they don't just love you when you're doing really well. And that's how you can cope with, with our inner perfectionist part is to just remember that the wise part is in there too. So we get the cat on our lap, curled up, give the cat a stroke, which kind of is very soothing and it engages our self compassion. We start releasing oxytocin. We start feeling a bit more emotionally balanced, and then we get imagery that might come up to, "Well, what would the cat's perspective be? What would Grandma's perspective be?" And maybe it's like, "I think you're doing your best. I think you're doing a really good job." And it, I know it might not be perfect, but you know what? I, I think it's, I think you're doing really great, and I'm really proud of you. And I don't expect you to never make a mistake. It's I kind of accept you as a human and we all know that but we have to give ourselves space to acknowledge that and giving that a name and a bit of an imagery and giving it a story for you so personally I like to use a tree because I love the fact that trees are wise they're really old and they just don't care about the rubbish that I worry about you know the tree's just like okay (laughs) never mind Lee that's been going on for years. I've been here for a hundred years and it wasn't, you know, I wasn't bothered about it then and I'm still not. And so it kind of helps me to just let go a little bit of the minutiae that I'm probably stressing about. So I think it really helps to have an imagery
1: with that too. I love that. I love that image of a tree. It's about getting perspective, isn't it? I love the metaphors. I love the stories. I love that idea of the cat. My cats are really stupid, actually. So (laughs) 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 That would work. And I was thinking, oh, maybe we could do the wise old owl from Winnie the Pooh. But actually, that owl is a bit daft and a bit critical, actually, isn't (laughs) it?
0: So owl is a bit critical it's a bit of a I told you so yeah kind of approach which we all have that mm-hmm. <laughs> inner owl as well maybe we need to just name that inner owl who's a bit of a know-it-all and a bit of a critical kind of part maybe that's that part so that, I, I suspect that would fit that What and we need yeah. another part it's worth remembering that you've got all these different parts and it's a bit like being a slightly dysfunctional team. You know, I've got my own team and they are definitely a bit on the dysfunctional side at times and, you know, all pulling in different directions and they're all arguing with each other and have different ideas about what's best and sort of criticising each other and criticising me. And, you know, it all, it's all kicking off sometimes when I'm feeling stressed inside. And so you kind of need the wise leader to be able to step up and, and be like a team leader who who can make the tough decisions and doesn't always listen, you know, to the critic who's shouting, but you need to do more, you need to work harder. And actually, somebody needs to go, I know you're always going to say that, but I'm going to make the call that it's time to stop and have a rest, because I think for us, that's the best thing to do. So I do hear that you would like to do more and that you really care about achievement. But I'm also recognizing that if I listen to the other parts, there's another part that's really tired and there's another part that, you know, just really needs a break. And I just feel like on balance, we need to go and go for a swim rather than staying at work any longer. And so you would need somebody to, again, that perhaps the prefrontal cortex, who's got a perspective and who makes kind of logical but compassionate decisions about what to do and how to lead this very complex team
1: I love that that thought that that we've all got our own unhelpful owl <laughs> that we that we think is really wise, but actually they're just critical and driving us forward. I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna take that. I'm gonna have my unhelpful owl, my wise old cat, and then the tigger, the chimp. Gosh, the whole menagerie in there. So Lee, you know it's really interesting doing this podcast with you now because I've had so many emails from listeners um, about parenting managing teenagers there's been lots of emails talking about neurodiversity in children and in doctors and i think we'd love to get back another time to talk about some of those things particularly the neurodiversity stuff but i think you mentioned earlier you had a, a case example that, that would just show us really this this grow model in action that we can then help us apply it to to ourselves as well is that right so i was thinking of a case
0: of a 15 of year old uh, young man who's lovely lovely young man who came to see me because he was quite low and his his mum was a bit worried about him and actually he through the through the process he later went on to have a diagnosis of ADHD which was which was interesting so he was 15 he played cricket to a really high level for his county so he was very committed and very focused on cricket it was really important to him And he was also doing his GCSEs and he found those a lot harder. It was during lockdown, you know, the the cohort who was having to do lots of homework. So you can imagine with ADHD, he found it really hard to focus on Zoom lessons. He just really found that hard. So let's just think about like, you know, a whistle-stop tour through the the four growth steps and how, how we might apply those. And I always start with G because actually I think finding out what people care about and where they want to take their life. So it's just starting with him and say, what what, what do you care about in life? You know, who do you want to be? So he was obviously very motivated by, by the cricket, which was his his real love. But actually, he did want to pass his GCSEs. That did matter to him and his friends mattered to him as well. So it was just helpful to have that understanding that those things actually were things that he wanted and not just being put on externally by his parents or or by the teacher's. And so then we're like, okay, ready for action. What little steps can you take? So, and again, that's thinking about well, what what problems are you facing? So he was struggling with a bit of perfectionism so that when he was playing cricket, so his critic would show up. So his low mood cri- would show up saying, well, you're not very good at, you know, cricket. You're. I bet you're going to mess this up. And also the critic would show up and he would say, well, you should be better than this bowler because they're actually in a lower team than you. So you should be getting this right. So you ought to do, you should be. And so it was a bit like driving his bus. It was very, very distracting. He'd be standing with the cricket bat and then all this barrage of stuff would be going on around him. And it was really hard to focus. So we went on to do the O, which was observe and open. Okay, when you're standing at at that moment you know, to play cricket, for example, can you just focus on your hands on the bat? Can you look at the colour, look at the sky, hear a sound and really ground your feet, just think about, and, you know, the physical movement of playing cricket. And we went back to his guide, so we did a little bit of looping and just remembered what's the purpose of playing cricket for you? And actually he got Since he'd gone to a higher level, he'd got stuck in. But I need to win. I need to be good. And actually, that is very distracting to actually playing well because it's just the whole mental stuff is going on. So we focused on his actual guide was like, but I just love cricket. That's why I play. And so we focused on trying to play each match to the best to to enjoy it and and focus on having a goal to play the best cricket that you have available on that particular day. And he found that really helpful, actually, to just reduce the, that kind of perfectionist performance-based, it, so moving away from outcomes and moving on to process. And in fact, he had a very similar thing going on when he sat down to study, because, which he found hard, that all his critics would show up and say, why do you find this so hard? Everyone else can do it why are you why can't you get and so his critic would show up big time and again like driving the bus it completely stops you from studying effectively if all you're doing is thinking about how rubbish you are then it's not an effective study technique um so for that we did some R ah, ready for action really micro steps So we would like set okay plan five minutes of studying can you plan to do some exercise before you study so that you're actually in a better frame of mind? What structures can you put in place that make it easier for you to be able to study? Can you bring in a bit of wise minds that once you're calmer, so a compassionate kind of perspective that everybody struggles actually, and so noticing that has his has his eeyore shown up, has his critic, his his owl have has, has have they shown up? Are they? squawking and being very distracted and so actually it's saying hello Al hello Eeyore I hear you but I'm going to ask my wise mind to make the decision about how best to manage right now and my wise mind says I'm going to do five minutes of studying and then I'm going to go for a walk okay and that's all I'm going to aim for right now and if I end up doing 10 great and so it was all about just creating a structure that supports somebody with ADHD and that's a lot. And a lot about neurodiversity is about knowing what structural environmental factors help somebody to thrive, and actually acting them out. So it's enacting the things that make you more likely to succeed. So it's putting into place the the breaks. It's putting in the walks. It's putting in the you know time, and then your brain will be more able to function more effectively because it suits you. And it's recognizing with your wise mind you're doing that because you're worth it. but be- Not because you're a loser and because you need extra help, but because you, why, why not have the best that you need? You know, you're worthy of a life that suits you and you matter. And that is why we're doing
1: it. As you were talking that through, I was just thinking of GPs and running late. And when we do our training and we say, can you think of a stressful situation that occurs regularly at work and everyone's like, Running late. <laughs> Everybody hates running late, don't they? And I'm just applying all of these to to running late. You know, thinking, oh, and all these these thoughts and that that unhelpful owl, that critic saying, no one else runs late like you, and you must be a really bad doctor, and uh, 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 and all these things, and then thinking, about actually, why why doing being a doctor in the first place? You know, going back to that guide and just being able to stay in the moment rather than fretting about all the patients you haven't seen or the ones that you've seen. I just think this is so applicable to professional life as well as, as well as helping teenagers. I use it on myself
0: all the time. <laughs> <laughs> I do. It's, it's, it's amazing. And I use it with my family as well, although it's a lot harder to do with your own family. I would have to say sometimes sometimes, the best way to teach our family as well is to do it ourselves. It's to model it, I think. And so sometimes we need to learn it, absorb it. I often say this to to when I, I'm working with practitioner health with people who've got children, and it's just reminding people that you know every time you care for yourself, you're actually teaching your children to value caring for themselves because they're learning by watching you. Every time you ignore your own feelings and maybe put them first, but actually To the detriment of you, you're teaching them that that's really what they ought to be doing at some point. And actually, I'm not sure that's a healthy kind of approach. So actually, learning to care for ourselves, you know, in an open way, and that that
1: that matters. I think that's actually really important. Oh, totally, totally. Because yeah, people absolutely uh, watching you all the time and, and how you're behaving, particularly at home and. Yeah believe me I have tried coaching my spouse my parents my children doesn't work. <laughs> all I get is stop therapizing me mum <laughs> and all I've asked is what do you think you could do about that? <laughs> I don't think we realize when we do just carry on and on and push ourselves and push ourselves and don't recognize our feelings how that is the sort of adverse role role modeling for our kids and for our teenagers how they they take that on board and they think that that's actually how a, a grown-up should be acting and that it's helpful
0: yeah exactly so I think it's really really important I said gave my kids a copy of the book they were like oh yeah lovely thanks that looks great mum <laughs> do you want to read it no no thanks <laughs> not at all but then every now and again my 10 year old son will you know will say to me oh it's a you know when I'm cranky usually well, it's okay to be upset, Mummy. Everybody has difficult feelings sometimes. I'm sorry to hear. It. So, sorry that you're upset. I'm sure it'll be better, to, you know. And so and then I think, oh, something must be. I don't know.
1: <laughs> Something's getting <laughs> through. Something.
0: I don't know what. Or what I don't because it's definitely not overt. So I think it just shows that little bits can still filter through, even when a lot of the time you're completely not doing what you want to do, but actually recovering from not doing what you want to do is part of life, isn't it? It's actually not about getting it right all the time because that's just perfectionism. And so in fact, we don't want to be, we don't want that.
1: Yeah. And I think the thing that I have noticed that I possibly do with my children is I, I struggle with negative emotions. And I think most people do, don't they? We don't like negative feelings. And I think my particular Enneagram personality really struggles with negative feelings. And so when they have negative feelings, I think I have tended to try and make them better for them or try and fix it for them. And I'm really trying to learn how to sit with those, well, we call them difficult feelings or feelings that I don't want or unexpected feelings, you know, such as as sadness or grief or, you know, and, and then when my children experience that, rather than trying to fix it for them, just to sit with them in that. And I think that's something that traditionally... We just try and fix, don't we, as parents, and particularly maybe as as doctors? We think we can just, again, like back to looping back to what we're talking about right at the beginning, we try and rationalize our our ways out of it and try and rationalize our teenagers out of it as well, which I think that's really irritating for a teenager.
0: Well, and and I think what's worth noting there is that when you're trying to do that, you're trying to fix your own feelings as as a parent because we don't like seeing them like that. And so we have a, a negative feeling that we're trying to fix by fixing them and actually it's a kind of proxy for managing a difficult feeling that's come up in inside us and so actually it's not just sitting with their feelings it's sitting with our own as well so it's back to the cat on the lap and it's almost like you both need to get your cats out and just let the cat purr and stroke the cat and just have a moment of let's all sit with our cat (laughs) just (laughs) just wait and it might be that we're all a bit more rational in a minute, you know, because I suspect if you try and do it too quickly, you're just, you know, it's that graph of, you know, when emotions are too high, you're just not in the space where you're functional, and so you just need to let that come come down off the top of the bell curve to a lower point, and then you can come back into the zone where your your brain fires up again, and you've got more kind of capacity to manage complexity. And I think we definitely need to know when oh, I'm, I'm in that, you know, in the danger zone and I just need to stroke the cat
1: until, I, <laughs> until I'm back out of it again. I love that I've got this vision of, you know, doctors throughout the country sitting there with their imaginary cats on their lap, like, you know, stroking them like Dr. Evil. <laughs>
0: yeah, I know. It's like a Bond. I was going to say it's like a Bond kind of thing, isn't it? So it is obviously, you know, some people hate cats just to say so. <laughs> could be a dog you or like. a tortoise or... Yes, exactly. Yeah. Ostrich, you know, who knows? But can you, I, I like, can you stroke an ostrich? I don't know, but I bet there's somebody who would like to.
1: <laughs> so, Lee, oh, uh, we're going to have to finish in a second. So, in a second, I'm going to ask for your, your top three tips, but I just want to really briefly touch on this self-compassion thing because I think we probably need to do another podcast about self-compassion because we are really... Rubbish at it as doctors, and I think teenagers are rubbish at at it as well. What are some really quick, easy wins for a bit of self-kindness and self-compassion? I think for me,
0: it's what I would call active compassion or fierce compassion. It's standing up for yourself, a bit like you might stand up for if you saw discrimination or something in the world, and you might stand up and say, "I, I don't think that's right, I'm really sorry, but. Could you not say that? It's actually standing up for yourself. And so I what I really like in compassion is that, because we imagine compassion is actually this really like, oh, it's just really nice and just be very gentle. And a lot of people don't relate to that because we're quite go-getters, you know, quite practical. And a lot of people are like, well, I don't know. I don't want to just sit here and stroke a cat. That sounds like a load of old rubbish to me. And so if, if that's you, then I would say it's about Structuring compassion. What action? What actions can you take that would actually be compassionate? Does it? Does it mean letting yourself off the hook? Going home, you know, half an hour earlier. Does it mean giving yourself a break? Does it mean making sure that you don't miss out on the self care action? So for me, I think it's actually an action would be the quick. The quickest win would be to pick ways of living that actually nourish yourself and nurture your well-being rather than just kind of beating yourself up to do more and more harder and tougher and never having a break. So I think that would be my single biggest tip actually for bringing self-compassion in, which isn't even a cognitive thing at all, but I actually think it has many cognitive sort of sequelae,
1: if you like. I love that. Uh, Tara Brack wrote about even just putting your hand over your heart yeah. It's a sort of touch to remind you that you, you are human, almost like giving yourself a hug and going, it, it, it's okay. Because our inner critics are unhelpful owls. I remember somebody saying something really recently about the fact that you would never talk to somebody else the way you talk to yourself. So just like you said, standing up to that, that horrible voice that you've just talked to yourself in, saying, no, that's not right. And I love that. Okay, so you go and... Have a bath, or just finish, even though you've got twenty million jobs to do, or doing something that actually is just going to be easy. Yeah, and make you feel better. I love that. You know, putting a
0: hand over your heart. Sometimes it's just saying to yourself, "This sucks. This moment is really tough. This is really hard." And that's it. And I, I want the best for you. I'm going to do my best to to help. And so it's kind of just giving yourself a message that this is a tough moment. So it's noticing that's the back to the o- open and observe again. I think it was Renee Brown. She's done a lot of work on along with Tara Bruck, who's also done a lot on self-compassion. I definitely recommend people listen to some of her podcasts. She's got got some fantastic ones about kind of um, battling shame, vulnerability and, and self-compassion comes up there. And she's written a book called A Fierce Self-Compassion. Um, which she talked about this idea about kind of viewing it as being a bit more of a dynamic kind of I I like the idea of it being more dynamic and not just kind of this namby-pamby you know lie down and oh wait for people to be nice to me kind of thing but actually it's actively doing something that stands up to say yes I matter and if I matter this is how I want to treat myself
1: yeah go be nice to yourself totally oh Lee we could just go on talking for ages But we can't go on forever. So, for this episode, out of everything we've said, what would your top three tips be when it comes to people really applying this stuff to themselves?
0: Well, I I think I'm going to have to come back to the sort of four growth steps. I'm going to say four. So, it's just remember think about what's important, think about your guide. What do you actually care about? Think about what ready for action, what little steps can you take that are going to move you in the direction of your guide? What little practical things that take three to 10 minutes only can actually make a change in your kind of ingrained habit behaviours that might not be working so well? Then open and observe, just notice what's going on. Just take 10 seconds to pause and notice and name, any thoughts, feelings or urges that are inside you. And maybe do you need to have a pause to let that all settle before moving on to your wise mind and let your wise mind be the leader. Let your wise mind acknowledge all the different parts, all the Eeyores and the, you know, the critical owls and the Tiggers and all of those parts which are kind of having a party inside us. But let the wise mind who is our prefrontal cortex just slowly reflect on, well, what's the most helpful way to kind of bring this together and make decisions about what's workable, about what's going to be kind of best for me, for other people. What's the, what's got a perspective. Do I need to draw some boundaries? Do I need to make some decisions? Do I need to just get on with something? You know, how do I need to cope in this situation and just bring the wise mind in to make the final call about, you know, don't don't let it be Tigger or Eeyore who makes the final decision. Let it be the wise mind who listens to them, but then makes the decision about what to do.
1: Brilliant! Oh, that that's so so helpful. And the good news in your book, there's lots of other little strategies under each of those sections, aren't there? That people can people can get hold of and and use. And I'm definitely going to be using. I think for me, I just love the idea of this sort of wise cat and the unhelpful owl and the tigger and the ear. I'm definitely going to be doing that and checking out this strategy. So Lee, how can people either get hold of you or the book or find out more about the work that you do?
0: My website is 10minutecbt.co.uk and the books are available on Amazon or any other booksh- bookseller that you want to go to. So it is, it, it is available. It should be available on Kindle as well. And then it will also be having an audio book, which is quite exciting. It's called 10 Minutes to Better Mental Health, a step-by-step guide for teens using CBT and mindfulness.
1: Wonderful. That's brilliantly. Thank you so much for coming on. Will you come back another time? There's so much more in this that I want to talk about. I'd love to. Thank you. Yes. Uh, Thanks for inviting me. (laughs) Thank you. And we'll speak soon. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening. Don't forget, we provide a self-coaching CPD workbook for every episode. You can sign up for it via the link in the show notes. And if this episode was helpful, then please share it with a friend. Get in touch with any comments or suggestions at hello at you are not a I love to hear from you. And finally, if you're enjoying the podcast, please rate it and leave a review wherever you're listening. It really helps. Bye for now.